Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We are back. It is December the um, the seventh, and we got a, a historical double header today. We already had Kim Khatas, uh, the author of uh, Black uh, Black Wave, on earlier today. Some of you maybe watched that, uh, and now we are. Uh, now we're returning to the 1930s from 1979. As I mentioned at the beginning of, uh, of the Hatat uh, conversation, uh, we're living in strange times. Uh, the Harvard economist uh, uh, Larry Summers has argued that 2020 is a hinge year, a year in which everything is changing, like 1918, 1914, 1938. Hattas argued that the hinge year in the history of the Middle East is 1979. And uh, as I said, we have a historical doubleheader today. We're returning to uh, the winter, the long winter of 1932, 1933, uh, with the historian uh, Paul Yankowski. Paul is the author of a really interesting new book, All Against All. Uh, Paul, why is the winter, at least in your mind, the winter of 1932-1933? Why is it a, a hinge year in world history? Uh, well, uh, first of all, thank you very much for um, thank you very much for having me. I. I think it's the year, it's the moment in which the world changes from post-war to pre-war. It's to say from the 1920s, there had been good faith efforts to try and put together some type of cooperative uh, international system among as many actors as were capable of joining it. And the, the winter, this long winter really, the, from about the, well, the late summer of 1932 to the spring of 1933, a long, dark, cold winter, Paul, yes? Indeed, very long, very dark, and very cold, is the moment when that particular effort falls apart. In a sense, the world falls apart. There are a number of events that seemingly have nothing to do with each other. Uh, famine in the Soviet Union with collectivization, the advent of Hitler to the chancellery in uh, January 1933, the advent of Roosevelt and the New Deal in the United States, um, the um, moment when Mussolini begins serious plans to invade Ethiopia, and various other developments which seemingly have nothing to do with each other, but which in fact in their very different ways betray, to my mind, a, um, the, the emergence of a kind of every man for himself, beggar thy neighbor, uh, um, mentality. All in against world. all, indeed, as as the title of your book. Let me show you, for those people able to 
watch this as opposed to listen. And, I, and I'm encouraging all our viewers to start watching this as opposed to just um, subscribing on audio. The cover of Newsweek on February the 17th uh, was a particularly interesting one, focusing, of course, on the coming to power of uh, the National Socialists in Germany um, and uh, and FDR uh, in the United States. Um, Paul, as a historian, does history have a zeitgeist? Are you Hegelian? Is there a spirit to history, or are all these were all these things in the the long winter of 1932-33 genuinely disconnected? I think they were connected in a rather abstract way. Whether I would call it a zeitgeist um, or not, I'm. I don't know. That sounds that sounds too metaphysical and too Hegelian for me but that's a simple prejudice. I think what they have in common is the appearance of a new kind of nationalism. And the countries I mentioned a minute ago, and there are others as well, and this includes Great Britain and France and some others, uh, seem to display a sentiment of us against the world. The entire world is a hostile place. And traditional nationalisms had always, traditional nationalisms had been directed at a historic oppressor or a hereditary enemy, usually. This was typical in the 19th century, um, the Poles against the Russians or the Irish against the English and so on. But this is directed against no one in particular, um, uh, not, not, uh, but against the entire world as a hostile place with which it is best to have as little to do as possible. Uh, if that's a zeitgeist, then yes, I would subscribe to it. Paul, you uh, teach at, um, uh, or, or you have at least taught at Brandeis University for a long time. I'm not sure if she was one of your former students, but Ruth Ben-Ghiat, who now teaches at NYU, I think she got her PhD from Brandeis. Yes. A wonderful book recently called Strong Men about the rise of Mussolini in particular and Hitler in Germany. Could you also characterize this moment as one in which the strong man came to the fore? Yes, yes. And um, if by, uh, I, I, haven't, I haven't yet read Ruth's book. Um, well worth reading, Paul. Well, certainly, uh, I think in tandem with yours. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm sure of it. And I, I, I'll certainly do so. Uh, the idea that authoritarian demagogues have something in common uh, is a sound one. Doesn't mean that they're all the same. There are major differences between Mussolini and Trump and so on. But um, clearly the, the authoritarian demagogue is a political type in the 20th century and it's, uh, <clears throat> uh, it's a well worth exploring, and it does it very well. I, um, the, the, I think the question was whether this is a this particular moment. I think the entire interwar period is is indeed that moment. I, I'm not sure I would go so far as to say that a, a lot of them suddenly spring up uh, as of, as from dragon's teeth in 1932 to 33, but in uh, some parts of the world they do in the 1920s and 30s. Um, for example, Eastern Europe, uh, this is a, um, a period when democracies there, uh, attempted democracies in the successor states, 
that emerged from the first the wreckage of the First World War uh, gave way in almost all of them, except for Czechoslovakia, uh, to um, uh, the, uh, the, that kind of regime dominated by a strong authoritarian leader without necessarily being fascist. So uh, somebody like uh, Pilsudski, uh, of course, in, in Poland. Uh, exactly, yes. Or in Hungary, by the mid-30s, Gombos, who was a outspoken admirer of Mussolini. Um, often they, um, they, they base their appeal in part upon, the, um, uh, upon ethnic tensions uh, in, and national grievances. Uh, and they appeal uh, nearly always over the heads of intermediary bodies, such as parliaments and chambers and so on. Uh, to um, large masses of people frequently appealing to their, uh, shall we say, uh, most primitive instincts, most primitive group instincts. Um, that's not all they did, uh, but uh, yes, in that, to, to, to that extent, I think the, um, uh, the, the, it, it is a distinctive uh, trait. It's a distinctive pattern of these years. Your narrative, and an ex it's an exceptionally readable and interesting narrative, even though you're, you're joining the pieces together. It begins in Central Europe and it ends in Central Europe, in perhaps the very center of Central Europe, Geneva in Switzerland. Uh, why is Geneva such an important town in this long, cold, dark winter of 1932? Oh, that's a lovely, that's a lovely picture. It's a town of my childhood. Um, that's not much of an answer to your question, but uh, that did have a role in it. I think it's important because it's the seat of the League of Nations. And I, uh, I, I use it really uh, as the site of the breakup, of the world fragmenting uh, in the, um, this long Sorry. winter. Very, very brief. I, I didn't mean to interrupt, Paul. Uh, but very briefly, not everyone, of course, watching this will even know what the League of Nations is. You might just give us a, a, a two or three sentences explaining when it was yeah. born and, and, and why. Yes, uh, certainly. The League of Nations was, a, um, in many ways, the child of Woodrow Wilson, the uh, president of the United States that took the country into the First World War. And... Um, this was what he cared about more than anything else in the negotiation that led to the Treaty of Versailles. And the covenant of the League of Nations, the new international organization supposed to assure peace in the world and spread liberal ideas such as, or liberal practices such as self-determination, the covenant of that, the, the founding document was part of the Treaty of Versailles. And the headquarters of that organization uh, uh, were, uh, they were established in Geneva, uh, giving um, birth eventually to the building that is now the Palais des Nations, which became after the war the European headquarters of the United Nations. The League of Nations was very much the forerunner of the post-war United Nations. Um, and it was, there was considerable hope placed in its, um, in its novelty and um, in its promise uh, in the 1920s. Uh, I take two of its major conferences, two major conferences to kind of bookend this book. 
One was the disarmament conference that opened in Geneva in uh, February 1930, had, a, had opened in February 1932, and was continuing throughout this long winter of 32 to 33. It was an attempt to, if not to abolish all armaments, at least to reduce them to reasonable levels, at levels which, as the Covenant put it and the Treaty of Versailles put it, uh, would be consistent with national security needs, but no more. The other conference, which, which the, the book ends, is in the July, June, July, 1933, the World Economic Conference, and was an attempt to solve the um, worldwide uh, economic crisis, then uh, really in its, uh, uh, in its depths. Both of those conferences were organized under the aegis of the League of Nations, and I think they, they marked the beginning of the end, uh, the, the point at which hopes were dashed. They were actually at their peak then. And um, you can see what's, uh, you can see the, um, the, the, the whole idea of a cooperative international world order begin to fall apart there. What really brought it down was the inability of the organization because of its most powerful members to do anything about the aggressive actions the Japanese, then the Italians, and then the Germans. But I, I think one can see it happening in those two conferences as well. Um, so I take that as a, as a way, as a, as, a, um, as a kind of window onto what was going on um, uh, in, uh, around the world outside the League. Paul, uh, of course, the title of your book, All Against All, is taken from... Uh, Thomas Hobbes, his great work, Leviathan, in which he described the world of violence of all against all uh, in, in a state of nature. Um, we had David Runciman, the, his, the, the Cambridge historian, on, um, on our show a couple of months ago, uh, explaining what Thomas Hobbes can tell us about Donald Trump. What did Thomas Hobbes tell us about this long winter of 1932? and the fragmentation of the international system? Uh, that's an interesting question. Of course, uh, Hobbes's uh, line against uh, all against all, uh, I think, was really meant to refer to the state of nature before there was any state at all, in which um, life was uh, uh, nasty, uh, brutish, and short. Which it did, it, it did become later in the 1930s and in the early 40s. It did, if you, it, it, it did indeed. If you extend it to, um, to international relations, it, um, it would describe not just, in the eyes of international relations realists, it would describe not just the state of nature, but the permanent state uh, between nation states in the world. The, the, the dominant school of international relations theory insists that that's simply the way things are. And as long as there are sovereign nation states, it can't be any other way. Now, I don't agree with that. Uh, but to return to your question, what Hobbes had to say about international relations is, is a little uh, unclear to me. And I, I would probably, I, I'll have to pass on that. Uh, but I do, I do know that he, he turned himself to the question of whether there could be uh, any kind of stable, peaceful, uh, basis for their relations with, with one another. And I think he was uh, rather pessimistic, but I am, I could be wrong about that. 
since I think his, his main interest, especially in Leviathan, which you mentioned, was to establish the basis for the state in human society, the contractual basis in which the war of all against all can be um, contained and controlled, and even ended. Paul, I know you're not, a, as you suggested, a Hegelian. You don't believe in some secret spirit of history. But might it be more than coincidental that Geneva was the birthplace of Jean-Jacques Rousseau? And of course, uh, Rousseau's ideas are very much in contrast with Hobbes in terms of the, the generosity of the human spirit. Um, was... Were, were those two worldviews in conflict in, in, in this long winter of, of, of 1932-1933? Was there a, a, a philosophical confrontation, if you like, between realists and idealists about the international system and indeed human nature itself? That would that, that that's an inter, that would be an interesting um, that would it'd be interesting to explore that actually. Uh, uh, as you say, um, the obvious difference between, or the most, the clearest difference between Hobbes and Rousseau is over, over man in the state of nature. Uh, whether man in the state of nature is aggressive, nasty, brutish, and short, and so on, or whether there is such a thing as a noble savage. Uh, I think in the, um, in the early 30s, there is no shortage of people uh, who believed uh, that uh, the permanent state of mistrust and um, suspicion uh, was not the only in, uh, possible uh, condition uh, uh, in which nation states could live with one another. There was a great deal of hope uh, that something else could be found, uh, and pacifism was one expression of that. Um, there were 400,000 members of the League of Nations Union in Britain alone in 1932. Um, the, the strength of that sentiment varied from country to country, but the, the, uh, the faith uh, that something better could be done, if you like, I, uh, some type of Rousseauian faith uh, was there. Uh, on the other hand, there were a great number of people at the other extreme who regarded this with derision. Obviously, uh, the Nazis, who were on the rise, had no time for this sort of thing at all. Uh, they had no time for Geneva. They had uh, no time for pacifism, no time for internationalism. And the same was true, really, of Mussolini. The same was true of a number of others. And, they of, were... course, and of course, Stalin, who uh, was was perhaps the, the most uh, Hobbesian of all, of all the, the, the leaders. Um, yes. you, your, your book is very rich in anecdote. You suggest that this Rousseauan faith in, 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 in the generosity of the human spirit was demonstrated both in the United States, in the Ladies' Home Journal, and at the uh, Oxford Union Society in a very famous King versus Country debate. Was the spirit in this period, because it's because of still the legacy of the, the, the bloody legacy, the terrible legacy of the First World War, was it still one of a, a hopeful pacifism? Yes, yes. And um, I, I think this is the moment when that spirit starts to ebb. 
But for the rest of the 30s, the whole pacifist hope uh, starts, finds itself on the defensive and um, uh, 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 starts to wane. But it had been real in the 1920s in various parts. And, um, and totally understandable, given the barbarism, the mass slaughter of the First World War. Yes, and uh, in, indeed, I, and, and people were convinced that if there were another war, it would really be the end of civilization. Uh, the, um, the fear of, the nuclear, of a nuclear holocaust uh, that um, was so real in the, in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s wasn't really the first time. They, they, in the 20s and 30s, people were convinced that uh, not much would survive the next war. They looked upon the next war as something, a war would come out of the sky. Uh, with uh, chemical weapons being rained on defenseless populations and, uh, and so on. They felt it would be even worse than what they had just lived through. Um, and um, there had been uh, uh, hopes and sentiments expressed before the First World War for some type of international, supranational uh, organization that might prevent this. But it was really the First World War, as you suggest, that uh, galvanized these sentiments. And... Um, made them so powerful uh, in, the, um, in the 1920s and uh, around 1930. The king and country debate that you mentioned uh, is an interesting um, example. Uh, the, the word pacifism means many different things. It can mean someone who, it can mean the sentiment that all violence, all use of force is wrong, but it can also mean a simple practical desire to do anything possible to reduce armaments and reduce the possibility of war. And uh, the um, king and country debate in which the students, the undergraduates of the Oxford Union um, in the traditional annual debate uh, decided that they would not vote, they would not fight for king and country was taken to be a sign of uh, weak-kneed pacifism by a great many people in England and abroad. Um, it really was probably something else altogether it really meant that if they were to fight, it wouldn't be for king and country. You know, they might fight for the League of Nations. They might fight for a better international order, but they wouldn't fight for the same sort of thing that had uh, cost the country uh, a, a million men uh, in, the, um, in the trenches of, uh, of Flanders and, uh, and, uh, and elsewhere in the First World War. Paul, um, we had the very distinguished historian Margaret Macmillan on the show couple of weeks ago, talking about war and suggesting that war is still, for better or worse, a reality, whether we like it or not. It's part of our future as well as our past, she said. Um, and I, I have a feeling we live in similarly pacifistic times today as, as, as it was in the early 30s. A few months ago, we had the Stanford historian, the uh, Walter Scheidel, on the, uh, on, on, on the show, talking about his new book, The Great Leveler, which argues that the only time you have a profound shift in the nature of inequality is through war or civil war or some sort of profound catastrophe. So while I'm not necessarily justifying the Second World War, uh, it is also worth noting that in, in the long, dark summer of 1932, the world was, was shaped by an increasing inequality between rich and poor and between the, the victims uh, of the Great Depression. Is that fair? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, you, um, 
you may be thinking primarily of the um, inequalities within countries and between groups of people, and that's unquestionably true. Um, but the, uh, especially at a time when the social protection systems are not what they are today. Um, so but, war is not, I mean, I'm the last person to glorify war, but not everything about war then, as, as Scheidel suggests, is in the long term catastrophic. Is that fair? You mean that wars can result in, in some kind of progress? Well, he argues certainly the Second World War resulted in the creation of welfare state and of a, a, a much more radical, uh, in, inclusive society eventually in racial equality or relative racial equality in the United States in female inclusion in the economy. I mean, that's part of another conversation. Um, uh, Paul, I, I, we so far we've been rather parochial and focused on Europe. I want to put a a map of the world up in 1933. The only one I could find is in Greek. Uh, hopefully the Greeks won't sue me for appropriating their maps. Uh, but the world, of course, extended far beyond Europe, as it always does. Um, and your book suggests that one of the, the, the key stages for uh, world history in, in this winter of 32-33 uh, was in East Asia. Tell me a little bit about the Chinese Civil War and uh, the J Japanese role in destabilizing the world in this all against all world. Yeah. Um, uh, let me take the um, se the second part of that first, the, the Japanese role. Um, it actually provides a link to the, the last point you were raising about inequality, that deepening sense of inequality between nations was what explains in part the rise of a trio of predatory nations, a trio of predatory powers, Germany, Italy, and uh, Japan, who uh, felt or professed to feel um, uh, that they had been the recipients of a raw deal uh, in Japan precisely the, the time we're speaking of. Um, you can read newspaper articles, one in particular I remember, uh, saying that, uh, why does Britain have all these imperial outlets, all these outlets for its exports, uh, all these commercial possibilities, and we have none? Uh, why, um, why can't we uh, intervene in Manchuria where we have economic interests, the way the United States intervened in Panama, uh, and the way where the band continues to intervene. Uh, and but about the same time, you have the Italian foreign minister, Dino Grandi, telling the Italian Senate, uh, how can a nation of 40 million people uh, be uh, held in by a sea which is controlled by others? by the British and the French, so that we can't even trade with our markets across it in Africa. And that's the sentiment, um, the sentiment of injustice and national inequality that leads to uh, the uh, supposed right to expand. Um, that sentiment was on the rise in Japan in the uh, early 30s. And it uh, became very apparent that it wasn't going to be content 
with, um, that a number of people would not be content with Manchuria alone. Now, you mentioned the Chinese Civil War. Now, um, here you, you have a civil war between nationalists on the one hand and a much smaller number of, a small but growing number of communists on the other, uh, in which the Japanese, little by little, began to interfere. Uh, now, as, as far as my book is concerned, it's mostly about the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, 1931, 32, and 33. But already, it was clear that they couldn't stop there. Uh, and the um, centrality of the Chinese Civil War to all that was happening then and what happened later is very clear when you uh, consider uh, that the, um, the interests of the Soviet Union uh, in, uh, in the area. Uh, the Soviet Union, and in this sense, Stalin was quite astute in, uh, in this. He understood that if the, the Chinese nationalists and the Chinese communists could be induced to give up their differences and patch up their differences rather, and unite in uh, some type of uh, front against the Japanese, the Japanese would be bogged down in China, which they were progressively encroaching southwards from Manchuria. And that would turn them away from the Soviet Union. He was as much afraid in the early 30s of Japan, in the early and mid 30s of Japan as he was of Germany. And um, he understood that this was about China and the Chinese Civil War. I'm not sure that the United States ever fully understood that when it was brought into it. So in the case of, of Japan, you have a country, uh, you have a, a group of people in Japan, Japanese militarists and some others, who are capitalizing upon the sense that they've had a raw deal uh, that their survival as a nation involves giving up their policies of the 20s, which had been friendly to the West, friendly to the League of Nations, in which they played a great role, uh, tied to uh, Western economies, and now had to and and now required that they go their own way. Uh, in um, and that meant in China, and that meant uh, that there were implications for others, for the Soviet Union right away, and a few years later for the United States. Uh, it's a rather long, involved answer, but uh. yeah, well, it's 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 a long, involved question and a long, involved issue. Um, the subtitle of your book is "The Long Winter of 19, 1933 and the Origins of the Second World War." Of course, the most famous book on the origins of the Second World War is A. J. P. Taylor's iconoclastic uh, yes. classic. Are you making any original arguments? The book itself is an original narrative. So whether or not you do make an original argument about the origins of the Second World War, I don't think really matters that much. But is there something new in this book when it comes to the origins of the Second World War? There may be. Uh, I would like to think so in that uh, the origins of the Second World War Origins as distinct from short-term causes uh, are not to be found in the blunders that diplomats make and the plans that statesmen make or that they fail to make. But I think they're, they're to be found at home in what's going on inside the various countries themselves. Uh, the seven countries that I concentrate on in this book um, apart from those in Eastern Europe, 
are the seven actors who had a direct, who played a direct role in the outbreak of the war. And if you want to understand how they came to play that role, I am suggesting you have to understand what was going on at home, what the domestic passions and the domestic fears were, and how their governments were forced in many ways to play to them. That I think is the is the place to look for the origins of how the Germans, the Japanese, the Italians, the Russians, the British, the French, and the Americans behaved the way they did in the international arena. Um, if you want to understand their international relations, you start at home. Now, I know there are a great many international relations theorists who wouldn't agree with that, um, but uh, it's not a work of IR theory. I, I think that to understand American isolationism, to understand the British with attempt to withdraw into imperial sanctuary, uh, to understand the Japanese push to expand, which I mentioned a minute ago, and so on, you need to look at them at home. Uh, uh, that is the um, uh, that 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 is the place to start, uh, which I uh, which I try to do in the book, as you say, in a narrative and descriptive way. Whether it works or not, uh, only the reader can say. Well, it certainly worked from my point of view. I, I, I think we've done a good job so far, Paul, not mentioning Donald Trump or Vladimir <laughs> Putin or any of these other yeah. contemporary strongmen. I don't want to get into them too much. But of course, uh, no one could pick up your book without at least thinking about the comparisons between the winter of 32, 33 and the, the dark winter of 2020, 2021. We had Frederick Finkelstein on the, on the show several times, the uh, New York-based historian arguing that fascism has reappeared, Madeleine Albright, many other people have made those arguments. Very briefly, Paul, what does the winter of 32, 33 tell us about today? Is, are there any similarities? And, and, and what can and should we learn from history? Uh, well, I think there are. I would stay away, I myself would stay away from comparisons with fascism. And, um, and uh, uh, interwar fascist movements and even interwar fascist leaders. Uh, I would be inclined to look at... Uh, look at the, um, at, the inter at the world scene. Now, in 2020, or even before, in, uh, today. Our hinge uh, year, the hinge year of 2020, at least according to, to, uh, to Larry Summers. Yeah, well, um, there have already been in this year, 2020, major movements of really transnational, of a transnational sort. Um, when you think of all the protests against racial injustice, uh, it's not just in the United States, but uh, uh, really in various parts of the world, in Latin America and Australia and Europe and so on. Uh, the, um, these came on top of uh, longstanding international causes, transnational causes for protection of the environment um, and, uh, and, and so on. Uh, the tension between those, let's stick with 2020, between COVID when that arrived, which is another another problem, uh, the uh, uh, which lends its which is a global problem, 
and logically requires a global solution. The contrast between that and the process of fragmentation going on between nations, which has been going on now for a good 10 years, what with Trump, what with Brexit, what with many other manifestations, uh, that tension between these transnational problems and causes and the risk of national the process of national fragmentation is to me reminiscent of what was going on in the early 30s when there were international causes galore. We've talked about some of them. We've talked about pacifism. We could have mentioned communism, the belief that there was a new light in the East, pilgrims going to Moscow and so on. All this happening just as the process of national fragmentation, every man for himself, as I mentioned, was going on then as well. That's the parallel that interests me at any rate. I'm a little, I'm a little un, uh, quite uncomfortable with applying labels of fascist to Trump or anyone else, but that's, that's really another matter. Well, the wisdom of a historian is always uh, very refreshing. All against all, um, the long winter of 1933 and the origins of the Second World War is, is, a, is a very refreshing, interesting, readable book about uh, a period a long time ago, which in some ways, as Paul has suggested, is like today. In addition to your book, I know you're in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You're locked up, Paul, like the rest of us in these strange times. Yes. Long winter of 2020. What else should people be reading in addition to your book? Well, I um, I read uh, uh, one. Well, let me mention one new book and one and one old book. Um, the new book is by um, Robert Gowarth, and it's about the Weimar the Weimar Republic and its fall. Uh, he had already written a very good book about the German Revolution of 1918. And this is an excellent account, among other works, and this is an excellent account of, the, um, uh, of how Weimar gave way to the catastrophe of the Third Reich. Um, enjoyed that very much. Then there is an old book published, I think, in 1951, a very famous book, which I, I recommend people read or reread, and that is by Czesław Milos, uh, The Captive Mind, uh, an account of, in part, of how intellectuals, uh, people supposedly of thought, uh, came to uh, accept the uh, stultifying uh, doctrines of Stalinism uh, and to persuade themselves that they were acting in the interests of humanity. It's many other things beside, but it's besides that, but it, but it is a, a glimpse uh, into uh, how easily we can uh, believe what is easiest uh, while persuading ourselves that we are uh, only uh, subscribing to what is true. Um, those are a couple. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. 
Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.